The passage this morning comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. It's printed in your bulletins. You could follow in your own Bibles as well. This is Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this account in the Gospels, specifically in the Gospel of Luke. We thank you for the words that are here recorded, the encouragement from Jesus' mouth to Martha and Mary in their home. We ask, Lord God, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that we would know you more clearly, that we would love you that we would be molded and shaped to be more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would be glorified in all you do this morning here among your people. We ask this, Heavenly Father, for your glory, for your worship, and in your name. Amen. This morning, as we look at Luke chapter 10, I feel like I have to tell you that these stories in Luke 10 and Luke 11 and Luke 12, they are some of the most well-known stories in all of Scripture. You think of last week, we talked about the Good Samaritan, a very well-known account. Next week, we'll talk about the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus commands His disciples to pray in this way. And as it goes with well-known accounts from Scripture, there are often a number of conclusions that we've already made as we hear the text read. Many of those conclusions are often unhelpful conclusions. There are things that we've learned maybe at our summer camps from preachers who have preached the Word, from women's or men's conferences, the things that we've built up in our understanding of a particular passage. But as I said, many of those conclusions are often unhelpful. I'll give you a few examples from the passage this morning. This is a well-known text. And if you've ever heard this passage spoken about in the past, you have likely heard something to this effect. As we read this passage, we see that Martha has the wrong personality and that Mary is the one who is doing the right thing. So be a Mary, don't be a Martha. Have you heard that before? Yeah, that's some often the unhelpful conclusions about this passage. Be a a Mary, don't be a Martha. In a different way, I was reading a commentator this past week. It was a commentator that I generally like, and as I was reading the commentator, he said the one thing that is necessary that the Lord Jesus speaks about in this passage, the one thing that Mary did, the good portion of Mary, was that she showed love and charity. 
And as I read that, I thought, are, are we reading the same passage? I, I don't see that in the text. Unhelpful conclusions. Now, what I'm asking this morning is very simple, okay? As you've come in here to look at God's Word, let's take our preconceived conclusions and let's just leave them at the door just for a second, okay? Let's look at the text with new eyes and new ears. What does the Word of God say? How has God spoken to us in His Word? And what does it not say? Now listen, if, if you end up the morning and you say, yeah, that's all the things I already knew about this passage, then you can pick up your conclusions on the way out. They're good. You can take them with you. But let's together look at the passage with new eyes and new ears. As we begin this morning, I want to first talk about the situation that we find in Luke chapter 10. The situation that Jesus speaks into in the home of Mary and Martha. If you remember, beginning in Luke chapter 9, Jesus has begun making His journey from the northern regions of Judea down to Jerusalem. He had spent most of His early life, His early ministry in the northern regions. And in Luke chapter 9, it says that Jesus set His face to Jerusalem. He begins what would be a nine-month, maybe 12-month journey to the city of Jerusalem, expecting, anticipating His soon-to-be crucifixion betrayal at the hands of His enemies. As Jesus is making His journey down, we read in verse 38 this morning, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed Him into her house. Now that's all we have to set the scene for the story in Luke chapter 10. And if that was all we knew about Mary and Martha, we wouldn't know much at all. We could make very few conclusions, but thankfully it's not all we know about Mary and Martha. In John chapter 11, we read the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And in John chapter 11, verse 1, it says that Jesus came to the house of Lazarus in Bethany where He lived with His sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the same Mary and Martha that we read about in John chapter 11. Knowing that this is the same Mary and Martha, we can draw a, a ton of different conclusions about this account in Luke chapter 10. For instance, in verse 5 of John chapter 11, it says that as Jesus went into that home, He entered into the home of Mary and Martha, whom He loved. They were beloved by Jesus. As we read about them later in the Gospels, we see this more and more. That Jesus had this deep, abiding, personal, loving relationship with Mary and Martha. I would suggest to you this morning that these are the women in all of the Gospels that Jesus is closest to. Maybe His mother, I don't know exactly. But he's very close with Mary and Martha. In John chapter 12, he has dinner with them, a second dinner. And that's where Mary washes Jesus' feet, John chapter 12. Many historians and theologians believe this is the same Mary who shows up to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body and finds that he's disappeared, resurrected. Mary Magdalene. Many people also believe this is the same Martha to whom the second epistle of John is written. Second John, written to this Martha. These ladies are all over the New Testament. They have this very personal relationship with Jesus. That's what we understand as verse 38 says that Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed Him into her house. 
Now, as you begin to understand the unfolding of the situation here in Luke chapter 10, it's a very interesting situation. Verse 39 says, And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to His teaching. Now, one of the things I want to encourage you with this morning is I want to continue to dispel the notion that Mary was doing the right things and Martha was doing the wrong things. Okay, We'll talk about why that is not the case as we look at this passage, but I want to begin with verse 39 because as you read in the ESV, it simply says that uh, she had a sister. Her name was Mary and she sat at the feet of Jesus. But the New American Standard, I think, depicts this in a better way. The New American Standard, many of you guys know, is kind of the gold standard for literal interpretations of the original Greek. And the New American Standard says she had a sister named Mary who also sat at the feet of Jesus. It's just one word in the Greek. It's a simple word, but it carries with it a whole host of connotations and, and baggage. She had a sister Mary who also sat at the feet of Jesus. Uh, that is, Mary sat at the feet of Jesus just like her sister Martha, in the same way as Martha, in the very similar fashion as Martha. The picture we get is that Martha and Mary both sat at the feet of Jesus, waiting to hear the words that He would speak, wanting to learn from Him as He taught them. So I want to begin this morning by letting you know Mary and Martha, they begin in very similar places in this passage, both interested in hearing the Word of the Lord from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what happens then? How does Martha end up on the wrong side of rebuke from Jesus? What happens that her attention becomes consumed with something else. See, the passage gives some small indications, but I want to kind of recreate this in your minds. At least what it seems to be happening with Martha is probably rather simple. Mary and Martha are sitting at the feet of Jesus, and it seems that no one was preparing the meal. No one was uh, preparing the home. No one had gotten Jesus a glass of water, glass of wine. And as Mary and Martha sat there, I'm assuming Martha thought, well, Mary's going to get up and do it. Eventually she will, right? Mary didn't get up, and so Martha, maybe she heard the buzzer going off on the oven. Uh, uh, Maybe she she knew that the bread hadn't been baked, and she said, okay, fine, I'll I'll get up and do it. But what begins with Martha as a well-intentioned, filled with joy preparation for the arrival of Jesus quickly began to morph into something else. Many of you have done something similar. You're preparing a meal for your guests who have arrived in your home or who are arriving, and you're thinking, yeah, the people in my house, they're going to help me prepare this meal, right? And as the preparation for the meal goes on and no one is stepping up to help you, you begin to become frustrated or bitter, don't you? If you're like me, here's what we do. We're, we're preparing the meal. Nobody's helping out. And uh, I think, okay, I'm just going to kind of in a passive way let them know I'm a little bit upset. So I'm going to slam the refrigerator door a little bit louder than usual, Right? And in the other room, they're going to hear it and they're going to say, what, better get up and help. The refrigerator door didn't work, so Martha began slamming the dishes into the sink. That's another one, right? You throw them a a little bit louder than you usually do, okay? Usually you sit them gently into the sink, but now you throw them a little bit louder. Mary didn't pick up on the hint. See, Martha's frustration began to build. She became bitter with her sister not helping out till eventually, as it often does with us, the, the passive uh, nonverbal signals that we're giving are, are not being picked up on, and eventually we burst, we boil over. That's what happens with Martha in this passage. In verse 40, she says, 
Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. That's a boiling over, isn't it? There's no other way to read those words in verse 40. The boiling over of Martha, okay? Now, that is the situation that Luke 10, verse 38, begins with. That's the context, the setting into which we understand the conversation that Jesus has with Martha. So let's now look at that conversation. The conversation begins with Martha saying to the Lord, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. It's the first words in this short account, the interaction between Martha and Jesus. And let me tell you, those words, the, the, the phrase that Martha utters are very bold, brazen words, aren't they? I would challenge you, I don't think that you could, you could come up with two other instances in all of Scripture where somebody speaks to Jesus with boldness like this, okay? And it says a number of things. It, it speaks about, well, this is kind of rude, I know that. There's a lot of negative connotations. It speaks about maybe her bitterness or frustration. But I would submit to you, it also tells us something else about Martha and her relationship with Jesus. You see, the only other time I remember words like these in the Gospels would be the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, right? The storm is kicking up. Jesus is asleep on the boat. And the disciples say, Jesus, do you not care? Save us. Same exact phrase. The question followed by the bold uh, uh, accusation and plea from the disciples. And I believe what they have in common in both accounts is that they have this deep, meaningful, personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. This is a phrase, no matter how wrong it is, no matter how rude or ill-conceived it is, it is a phrase that communicates a comfortability. A comfortability that, that Martha has with Jesus. You have to think how even exceedingly comfortable she must have been for a woman to say this to a man. I, the, the setting and the scenario in this day and age is just chalked full with courage, boldness, brazenness. I don't even know how to describe it, okay? But that's how Martha begins. You see Jesus' response to her. Jesus says, Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha. Jesus only ever uses anyone's name twice. Two other times he speaks like this. Peter, when Peter denies the Lord, he says, Peter, Peter. Paul, on the road to Damascus, Saul, Jesus meets him there on the road and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I think in all three instances there is a deep abiding love for Jesus with Peter, Paul, Martha, but also a deep sense of pity. Pity for Peter. Peter, what are you doing? Paul, why are you persecuting me? Martha, why are you so anxious and distraught? In the words of Jesus, we hear this personal love and pity for Martha as he sees her spinning her wheels over what seems to be nothing very important. And so Jesus uses these words. He says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. Anxious and troubled, it has the same connotation as the word earlier when it says that Martha was distracted. All three words indicate an overwhelming feeling that is a perception and not a reality. Okay? 
it is the perception of Martha that she is overwhelmed. And if we were to evaluate what Jesus is saying, it's as if he's saying to Martha, listen, you may feel like there's a lot to do, but there's not a lot to do. Don't be anxious. Don't be troubled. Don't be distracted by these things. They are things, and at this moment, they're not as big as you perceive them to be. Now, I think it's interesting. I'm not sure how many of you are aware of this, but the early church, in the first 500 years of the church, they had interpretations of many of these New Testament passages that are very different than our own. For instance, last week we read the Good Samaritan. For the first 600 years of the church, everybody who read the Good Samaritan to a T thought that it was a parable about Jesus. Jesus was the Samaritan. The innkeeper was the church. Jesus comes to the road. He finds us broken and beaten. The priest and the Levite, they're the, the church hierarchy. They don't help the person, but Jesus helps the man, and he delivers him to the church to be cared for. Okay? That was the whole interpretation of the Good Samaritan. Well, this passage is similar. And the early church interpreted this sentence in a very unique way. I, I, it kind of makes me chuckle, so I'll tell you how the early church interpreted this passage. As Jesus says, Martha, Martha, do not be anxious and troubled. One thing is necessary. The Greek says one is necessary. And in Greek, you fill in the subject. So one what is necessary? Well, the early church interpreted this passage in this way. Martha, Martha, do not be anxious and troubled. Only one plate is necessary. Only one plate is necessary. The, the early church, when they read this passage, they, they thought that Jesus was saying, listen, Martha, I don't need appetizers. Uh, I, the hot fudge sundae you were preparing for dessert, it sounds great. I don't need that. Okay, just one plate. I just need one plate, all right? Now, I don't, I don't think that's what the passage is saying, but I do think it picks up on the idea of Jesus' words. The, the idea of Jesus' words is very simple. Martha, these things I don't need, okay? I, the house doesn't need to be tidied. Uh, I don't need a ton of food or fanfare, all right? Uh, these things are not necessary. One thing is necessary. And we're going to talk about that. That's the last thing we'll talk about this morning, the necessary thing. But let me ask you a question. What is, ultimately, what is Martha's problem that Jesus is addressing? And let me say, I've said it already a few times, but it is not that Mary is right and Martha is wrong, that we ought not to be spinning our wheels and doing work and, and laboring, but we ought to be chilled out and laid back and reserved. That's not what's happening in this passage. And so please do not use this, as I think some people have, do not use this as an excuse to laziness, okay? Not like, well, you know what? Uh, Mary was the good one and she did nothing, so I better do nothing, all right? When we talk about needing workers in the nursery, this is not your excuse to say, yeah, I'd love to help in the nursery, but I want the, the good portion, okay? The one thing that's necessary. That's not what Jesus is speaking about. We know as we read the epistles over and over again, the exhortation to be involved in the work of the Lord, to be laboring as He's designed us, uh, to be intentional with our time, to be committed to the work that He has put in front of us. That is not what this passage is speaking about. See, as Jesus speaks to Martha. What he's saying to Martha is he's beginning to expose the nature of idolatry in our hearts. And it's very simple. Idolatry goes like this. Idolatry is the, the taking of a good thing and making it to be a great thing. Or taking a good thing and making it to overshadow 
the greatest thing. Or taking a good thing and causing it to become a barrier to the greatest thing. All right? Now, that may be career or that may be money, or that may be family, or that may be success. That may be, as it was for Martha, hospitality, which is commended in Scripture. You see, what Martha is doing on any other day would have been great, would have been commended, but not on this day. Why? Because Jesus was in the home of Mary and Martha. Jesus was in the home of Mary and Martha, and the words of Jesus are saying to Martha, I am here among you, in your home, present with you, sitting with you, and you know what? The things you're doing, though they're good, they cannot get in the way of this greatest thing. You see, from a cosmic perspective, what Jesus is saying to Martha is very simple. Very God, a very God is sitting in your living room waiting to dialogue with you, waiting to teach you and to show you love, to teach you the nature of faith, and you are busying yourself in the kitchen washing dishes, okay? You, you see the comparison, right? There's no comparison. The good thing and the greatest thing. Jesus present among us. Now, Jesus says of Mary, she has done the one necessary thing. Hers is a good portion which will not be taken from her. And I want to finish by talking about that, the, the one necessary thing. The one necessary thing that Jesus speaks about. Yes, they are in the presence of their Lord. Yes, they are sitting with Him to hear from His mouth what He has to tell them, what He has to teach them. But I think as Jesus speaks about the one necessary thing, He's referring all the way back again to verse 39. In verse 39, again, it says, she, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to His teaching. And I want to tell you, if you hear the Greek of this passage, you'll probably begin to understand what exactly is being said here. So let me just read to you the Greek, and if you know any Greek at all, you'll probably pick up on some of these words. The Greek, the second part of this verse is koreas ekuen ton logos atu. Now you're probably like, okay, what does that mean? I have no idea. You, you heard two important words, right? Koreas and logos. Lagos. You know those words. Those are the popular Greek words. You see them on tattoos, right? Or written on bumper stickers, okay? The actual rendering, that, that's the word for Lord and the word for word. The actual rendering of the second part of this passage is that she had a sister, Mary, who sat to listen to the word of the Lord. And it, so it's translated as the, the teaching of the Lord. That's fine, right? But there's a depth to the words that are actually written here. Then Mary sat to hear the teaching, uh, to hear the Word of the Lord. Now I want to encourage you this morning. As Jesus says to Martha, one thing is necessary. I believe He completely has in mind the Word of the Lord, the hearing of the Word, the listening to the Word of the Lord, that He's exhorting Martha. Martha, with all the good things you're concerned with, Mary has committed herself to this one thing, to the hearing of the Word of the Lord. To this 
She is dedicated to this. She is committed and she is to be commended for this is the good portion. This is the one thing that cannot be taken from her. She is hearing the word of the Lord. The question I want to end with this morning is very simple. Are we committed to the word of the Lord? Are we committed to the hearing of God's Word? Are we committed to the vitality that it brings in our lives? Are we committed to the understanding that this is the anchor of our souls? The Word of God as proclaimed through the mouth of Jesus, as recorded for us here. God's Word. Do we see that this is the one thing that is necessary? The one good portion. Charles Spurgeon was speaking about John Bunyan. Many of you know John Bunyan. John Bunyan, the great pastor, the theologian, the author, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Many of you know John Bunyan. Spurgeon was speaking about John Bunyan, and he was asked, what is the one thing that distinguishes John Bunyan? And you know what he said? He said, if you cut John Bunyan, he would bleed the word of the Lord. And I love that description. If there's anything I would want ever to be said of me, it'd be that. If you cut John Bunyan, he would bleed the word of the Lord. Martin Luther said it a little bit differently. He said, the soul can do without everything except the word of God, without which none at all of its wants will ever be provided for. Do you understand that this one thing is necessary? That this one thing is the good portion Do you understand as you think about the Christian life, everything that we suppose or think the Christian life is about, all the things that we ought to do or not do, all the things that we ought to be or not be, the things that we think we we should do or not do, do you understand that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of the Lord, through the Word of God? This is the exhortation to Mary and Martha this morning. Our lives, they tend to be riddled with performance-driven Christianese and elaborate concoctions in our mind of what we are and what we must do and how we must do it. Yet, the one thing that is necessary, the only good portion or inheritance, is the Word of God. We must allow that Word to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, to overthrow our patterns of thought behavior, to listen to and to lead us to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and the giver of life. That by His Spirit illumining the Word in our hearts, we will be transformed into the image of Him who died and into whose image we are being conformed. It's the power of the Word of the Lord. It's the one thing that is necessary, the good portion, if only by that word we have been commanded. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ admonish and edify you. May you see that the word of the Lord is all that the man or woman of God needs, edifying you, making you to be complete in the Lord. May that be your vision, brothers and sisters as you consider the one thing that is necessary. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that you have spoken and that your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing between thought and deed, between bone and marrow.
soul, and spirit, discerning the thoughts of our hearts. We ask, Lord God, that that word would be active and living in us, putting to death sin in the old man, revealing to us the righteousness of Christ, which is necessary to cover us, to make us holy, to make us sons and daughters of the King. So, Lord, may that word, may that word be deeply rooted in our hearts. May we live and breathe the word of God. May it be on our tongues. May it be spoken in our homes. May our children hear it from our lips. May it be plastered on our doorposts. May it be the conversations that we have with our neighbors and our community. May the word of God dwell in us. That you would be glorified, Father that we would be built up. We love you. We thank you for this word. We ask that you would use it in us for your glory, for your praise and honor. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.